Good morning. Let's go ahead and uh, begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. Uh, We pray that your spirit will join us, that our hearts and minds will be enlightened, uh, that we will experience your love and unity and friendship, and that we will uh, be effective in promoting a true message about you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we're doing lesson uh, number nine in our uh, study guide, the Gospel in Galatians, and the title this week is Paul's Pastoral Appeal. And in the first paragraph, it states, Uh, As we've seen so far, Paul did not mince words with the Galatians. His strong language, however, simply reflected the inspired passion he felt concerning the spiritual warfare of the church that he had founded. Besides the crucial theological issues with which Paul was dealing, the letter to Galatians, in a broad sense, also shows just how important correct doctrine is. If what we believed were not that important, if doctrinal correctness did not matter at all, all that much, then why would Paul have been so fervent, uh, so uncompromising in this letter? So I wanted to talk to you about belief today. Uh, Does it matter what we believe? Is it important what we believe? Uh, You know, a little saying that I I sometimes tell my my patients in my lectures is, you know, we have power over what we believe, but what we believe has power over us. And, we, and we, we want to think about some of our beliefs today. And an example I like to give is if you're in a marriage and somebody tells you a lie, and you're in a healthy, loving marriage, and somebody tells you a lie that your spouse is having an affair. And there's no truth in it, but if you believe that lie, will something inside you change? That belief will have power over you. What will happen inside you if you believe your spouse is cheating, but they're not, but you believe they are? What happens inside of you? Do you have as much peace? Yeah. Do you think there'll be some stress you'll go through? Do you think your anxiety will go up? Well, listen to this out of Desire of Ages, page 671. It says, The Comforter is called the Spirit of Truth. His work is to define and maintain the truth. He first dwells in the heart as the Spirit of Truth and thus becomes the Comforter. There is comfort and peace peace and truth, but no peace can be found in falsehood. It is through false theories and traditions that Satan gains his power over the mind. By directing men to false standards, he misshapes the character. So, by getting us to believe things that are false, what do you think? Can you give an example? How, by directing us towards false ideas, false standards, lies, how does Satan get power over your mind? Control, he says. Any examples? If you truly believe the doctrine of the ever-burning hell, you're not going to trust God very much. Okay. And this is, of course, what happened in heaven. Satan told lies about God. He got power over the angelic beings. He told lies in Eden. He got power over humanity uh, because he told lies about God. Um, When we believe lies, such as the one your spouse is cheating, or such as God is going to burn you in an eternal burning hell... You know, neurologically, it activates uh, in your brain the fear circuits of your brain. And your fear circuits begin releasing um, signals that cause the stress cascade in your body. And the stress cascade in your body causes inflammation. 
And inflammation will cause you to have aches and pains and muscle fatigue and concentration problems. And it actually will lead to increasing metabolic illness like diabetes and heart disease and stroke. And, and this all comes from a metabolic cascade from constant worry and fear, which is based off of believing lies. Isn't that interesting? Further, when you believe, when you believe lies and you act on fear... How do you treat others when you're, when you're primarily motivated from fear? Are you loving and kind and gracious and giving, or does fear cause you to protect self? And so your relationships will be hurt when we, when we activate our fear circuits and operate from fear. Pardon? Become defensive. We become defensive, yeah. So how can we defend ourselves against this type of believing in lies? How can we free our minds from lies and distortions we might have? She says, fill it with the truth. Oh, I like that. Um, do what the Bereans did. There you go. What did the Bereans do? Study. And what did they study? The scriptures. They studied the scriptures. They studied the scriptures. Exactly. Desire of Ages 390. It says, as our physical life is sustained by food. Think that through. As our physical life is sustained by food. So our spiritual life is sustained by the word of God. Every soul, and every soul is to receive life from God's word for himself. As we must eat for ourselves in order to receive nourishment, so we must receive the word for ourselves. We are not to obtain it merely through the medium of another's mind. That includes me. You can't obtain truth through my mind. We have to partake and study the word ourselves. Yes. To the Bereans, there was an action that they took, which was to check things out. But that also was the outworking of an attitude, of a worldview that said, I'm not going to believe it just because you say it. There was a desire to learn and to understand that each individual had. Thank you. And so as I've said in here before, I'll say again, my goal is not to tell anybody what to think. But I work really hard to try to get you to think. I really work really hard to try to stimulate your interest and, and motivate you to ask questions and then go study and, and on the word on your own and, and partake of the answers. So do our beliefs matter? I thought, what beliefs are important? What are important beliefs for us to hold? And I, and I listed a few, and these are the ones that just came off the top of my mind at first, and I want you to think about these. Would it be important to believe that God is our creator? And the, understand the truth about the nature of man? and the Sabbath, and the sanctuary, and healthful living, and the principles of healthful living, and even supporting the church with tithes and offerings. Did you know that those who put Christ on the cross held all those beliefs? Didn't they? Yeah. Huh. So what went wrong? They had all those beliefs right. I mean, they didn't have the wrong day of the week. They understood the principles of healthy living. They believed God was creator. I mean, all these beliefs they held. What went wrong? They didn't believe in God's love. But Deuteronomy, I bet you they'd quote it to you. What's Deuteronomy say? God is love. They didn't personal relationship. Yeah, they believed the Bible said it, but they didn't necessarily appreciate and believe it in their heart what it meant. I have another theory as well. I think Russell's exactly right. But the idea that Bible doctrine is only relevant when it is connected to the character of God and the, and the controversy over the character of God. When we take doctrines and we make them as standalone beliefs 
and we go to our proof text from Scripture, and we prove that which day of the week is the Bible Sabbath, and, and, we, and we have no connection at all of what the Bible Sabbath says about God. It's just, it's the Bible Sabbath. We present the state of the dead, what happens when people die, and, and, and the expectation of the resurrection, on a standalone doctrine, sex, uh, severing it from its connection with the truth about God. Then we create barriers to knowing God and barriers to salvation. That's, that's a theory. What do you think? Yes. Is it possible to believe and yet not agree with it? Give me an example of what you mean. We may read it in the Bible, God is love, and in which way God treats his enemies, but yet not agree with it, that it is right. Then I would say that you're probably then interpreting what that means in a different way, and so you have a different belief about what it means than another person. A different interpretation, a different opinion. Right. In the book of James, uh, James says, the devils believe in God, but fear and tremble. Yeah, they believe in God and fear and tremble. So they they have great confidence. In fact, um, I would suggest that the devils are probably the the most convicted Adventists on the planet. Wouldn't you think? They really believe in the Advent that's coming, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, they do. I, I don't think they have doubts about it, do you? No. But some of us, you know, maybe still still struggle with that. Well, I, I wanted to review some some of our beliefs, some of our doctrines, and and ask the question: What do they tell us about God if we believe it one way, and what does it tell us about God if we believe it another way? And so let's start with the first one: the Trinity. If we believe in a Trinity, the traditional view—Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Triune perfection of of love—if we believe in a Trinity, what does it tell us about God? Well, I think it proves that God is love, because not one can love. We have to have somebody to love. Margaret's right on the money. Love does not exist in isolation. Love does not exist as a singularity. Love is, if you understand what love is, it's outward moving. It's other-centered. As uh, Michael W. Smith in his song says, love isn't love until you give it away. And so the fact that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a triune perfection of other-centered love, this, 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 uh, this um, trinity is evidence of God's character of love. If you take away the trinity, if Jesus isn't fully God, think about the implications. Then God doesn't love us enough to come and sacrifice himself. God is selfish enough that he'll send someone else in his place to sacrifice them in his behalf. You see the terrible implication here if we don't believe in the Trinity. Yes. There's God the Father. There's Jesus, his Son, who's also God. But the problem with the Trinity, I think, is mainly that the Trinity claims that Jesus is not really the Son of God. He is playing the role of God. Hmm. In other words, he is not the physical... Son of God, as God said to, to, uh, at his baptism, here is my son. Mm-hmm. Now, the Trinity doesn't really believe that Jesus is the son of God. He is just another God. Yes. If you believe that all the God held are alike, there's a difference. And if you believe there's three with three different personalities and one is having to beg the other one to be good. Yeah. Yeah, and there's another one. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. 
He, uh, Wendell's pointing out, if you believe that Jesus is loving, kind, gracious, and the Father's an arbitrary authority that has to be pled with by a son, then you believe in the Trinity, but you've represented a Trinity in such a way that you've caused a disparity. They're not actually the same anymore. You've got a punitive dictator judge uh, with a loving, compassionate son who pleads his blood to a son to be kind and gracious, which is one form of how the Trinity is presented. Yes. I heard a presentation one time about the Trinity that really made sense to me in a way that we can understand, I think. Look at water, for example. It presents itself in three forms. It presents itself as ice and steam and actual liquid water, but it's all water. It's just in three forms. Oh, nice. We can see we can present the Trinity in a way that we see a triune perfection of love. Love can't exist in isolation. We have a selfish being if he's, if he's, if he's a singularity. On the other hand, we have the trinity of eternal love that's always been existence. We can also take the trinity idea and turn it into an idea where they're not equal in character. One's loving, one's punitive. And then we've distorted again the character of God. So the idea of our doctrine should reflect something back on how we see God. How about this one? God as creator. Do, do we believe God as creator? Or do we believe in God created, as the Bible says, speaks into existence, and it is? Or do we believe, as many, many Christians now are teaching, in theistic evolution? That God uses evolutionary mechanisms to create. He created the matter, he gave a spark of life, and then he kind of let evolution take control, and evolution creates. What does it say about God if you teach that he speaks things into existence, the way the Bible teaches? That he creates perfection. That he creates things without defect, without disease. That he creates things without pain, without suffering. That he creates things to operate in harmony with love. If you use theistic evolution, your principles of evolution are survival of the fittest. It's principles of selfishness. I will kill you so that my and my offspring can survive. And it's based on killing and death. And all of a sudden we have a God who is who's who's constructed a universe to be at war with each other, fighting for survival, killing and to overcome and destroy so that I can live and you won't live. The Bible principle is, greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. The, the theistic evolution is, I love myself so much that I'll do what I have to to advance my own genes, which means kill you if I have to so that we can survive. So the doctrine of, of creation goes right back to what kind of God you believe in. And I can't accept a God who would operate on theistic evolution. And people do this because they actually haven't been able to uh, understand, uh, and I think we'll come to it in the next one, God's law. How do you understand God's law? Is God's law the the law of love, the, the natural law that he constructed and built his universe to operate upon? Or is God's law an imperial law like Rome that he imposes upon his creatures and then oversees as an imperial ruler to, to watch for violations and mete out punishments against? Which kind of God do we worship? How do we understand his law? It goes right back to how we understand the kind of being God is. Christianity, of course, you know, accepted a, a, an infection when Constantine converted and Christianity became infected with imperialism. And the whole concept of God's law got changed. And the whole concept of, of, of what Christ did for us got changed through the lens of this imperialistic law. If you believe in an imperial law, then God becomes a, a dictator who monitors behavior, imposes penalties, and must have payments for justice 
to be served. Sounds a lot like a pagan god. What about the nature of man? Is mankind mortal? Did God create mankind mortal? Or did God create mankind with immortality? What does it say about God? If God creates man mortal, what does that say about God? If God creates him immortal, does it say something different about God? If God creates man mortal, it shows God's foreknowledge. And that God would never create a situation in which his intelligent creatures would suffer for all eternity. He would never create a situation where that could happen. If we say God is Im- if we say that man was created immortal, then what do we say that either God is ignorant, foolish, capricious, callous, or sadistic, as he either didn't know what was going to happen and foolishly gave man immortality before he knew what man would do, or he knew what man was going to do and he created him to suffer eternally. That doesn't coincide with the God of love. I've got a couple more we're going to go through. But do you see how when we attach our doctrines back to what does it say about God? It really becomes clarifying, doesn't it? Regarding your early question about does this make a difference, this particular area, more than any other, I think, has developed more atheists than any other uh, reason. What, which area? The idea of the nature of man. The idea that you would have a God who would create people to suffer or to die or to burn eternally. And this is taught by most all of the Protestant religions. Right. And they teach eternal burning hell because they accept this premise first that God created man immortal in Eden. And, and if you've created man immortal, and then they sin and disobey, they've already got one, and God's hands are tied. What, what are you going to do if they don't want to come and live in heaven? They've got to go somewhere, and so they suffer. Most Christians who teach an eternal burning hell are not happy about that doctrine. They just feel there's no choice since man is already immortal. That's a good point, yes. The first doctrine I think we have is the belief in the Bible. Is the Bible God's word? Or was it a book written by humans with human errors? When you start looking at the Bible, there are some incongruences here and there. Some Christians say, oh, well, the first ten chapters of Genesis are not true. They are just a fable. Well, other parts of the Bible, the New Testament, of course, are true, but not the miracles of Jesus. In other words, you have a tension, I think, in Christianity to, to believe, is the Bible fully God's word, or is parts of it, or most of it, God's word? That's going to have a direct impact on how you see God, too. Well, uh, I run into a lot of people, and what they do, they'll uh, say that the, the people rewrote the Bible over again, that they kind of like added what they wanted into it, so how do you know that this has really come from God? When uh, I think when uh, one of the emperors uh, he got out he got out you want the church like to be one and he had this kind of council and they all decided what books would go in the Bible and what would be written and so that shadow that throws a doubt a lot of people believing that uh, it really truly comes from God. Do you think you have to have the Bible to know God? No. I mean, this is a false argument. I will just tell you, it's a false argument. And this is what, another one of the devil's tricks. Hey, how do we know the Bible? I mean, somebody translated, might have been translated wrong. Hey, they might not put all the books in. Um, you know, you might not have gotten this right. You might not have gotten, we shouldn't even, we couldn't trust it, but not read. You know what? It's probably not even God. You don't need the Bible to know God. I think the Bible is inspired. I think the Bible is a clear window into the character of God and is there for our edification. And it's important for us to have confidence in it. But there will be people in heaven who've never actually ever had the opportunity to read a Bible. 
And, and we're going to come to that in just a minute and show how those two pieces connect and how that works. But I think this argument is just another red herring to get people to doubt. I, I want to show, I'll show in a minute how we can put those two pieces together, okay? One of the things when you said about uh, do we have to have the Bible, uh, in the 14th chapter of John, Jesus talks about a comforter that he would send that would lead and guide his apostles and bring to every, uh, every word he said, it would bring to their remembrance, it would show them things to come. It says it would not speak of itself, but it would show them, it would take from him and show it unto them. <coughs> and uh, that's the teacher, the comforter, the Holy Spirit that he that's right. promised to the church. Thank you. What about the Sabbath? Another doctrine. If you believe the Sabbath is evidence itself, its existence, the fact that we have the Sabbath, the seven-day week and the seventh-day Sabbath, that it itself is evidence of God's character of love. He presents the truth in love, leaves his beings free. At the end of creation week, he says to the universe, hey, I rest. Consider for yourself all that's transpired. Come to your own conclusion. That the, the existence of the Sabbath is evidence of God's character of truth and love. That, that tells us one thing about God. If you teach the other Sabbath there's no reason for it other than God is arbitrary and he made an arbitrary test to test your obedience. Then you have another kind of God. How do you understand and teach the Sabbath? What about the sanctuary? Another doctrine. Do we connect it to God? Is the sanctuary a little theater designed to teach God's plan to heal the spirit temple back into God's design, God's original intent, revealing God's gracious, patient, loving character who steps down and meets ignorant man where they are to give them some little theater to act out the plan of salvation because they're so darkened in their minds? Do we understand the little theater mode on the sanctuary? Or do we see the, the, the sanctuary system as a sacrificial system of appeasement with blood payments to an, an angry God to atone for the broken law uh, and pay for our sins, very much like Baal was approached? How do we see it? You see, two different gods depending on how we understand the doctrine. How about the final end of sin and sinners? Final end of sin and sinners. Uh, do we believe that God unveils the fullness of his life-giving glory and those whose minds are solidified with lies and selfishness are tormented by their own selfish characters and unresolved um, issues of their heart? And that... Um, as they come face to face with their own condition, their own history that's not been changed, we see that God patiently waits today for every person to experience a transformation of heart, so he postpones his coming. Or do we believe that God uses his power to inflict pain and suffering, performing miracles to keep his children alive in the fire so he can torture them longer to make sure that they get what they deserve? What about the investigative judgment? Uh, what about the investigative judgment? Well, do we still believe that today? Is that important for us or not? Um, what is your thought on the investigative judgment? Well, I think when we, when we die, I think most of us are going to die someday, unless Christ comes first, it will have been decided whether we're going to be saved or not. Who decided that? I think it will be Jesus. Who is really? Do you think Jesus decides whether your name's in the book of life or not? No, we decide. Yeah. Uh, does G what's it say in Timothy that God wants all men to come to salvation? For God so loved the world that He gives and loves the Son that whosoever believes in Him should have everlasting life. The whosoever believes in Him. God so loved the world that whosoever Jesus writes in the book of life will be in heaven. 
No, whosoever. What's the linchpin? What determines whether your name gets in that book of life or not? Your decision to accept Christ. It's not, I mean, Christ ultimately decided to do what was necessary to save us. We're not going to write our names in the book of Lamb. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, the book of, the book of life. It's a metaphor. A metaphor for what? A parchment? A lambskin? A scroll? Is that what's in heaven? How about a how about a, a, a IBM Super 750 server? Probably not. It's just a metaphor to tell you that there's some type of record, and if you and if you value what Ellen White says, she said that the 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 uh, heavenly records record exactly like the photographic plate records the exact details of the face. The heavenly records record exactly your character. So what's recorded there is your character. And what determines what kind of character you have? The decision Jesus makes when he reviews the records, that determines it? Or the decisions we make right now to let Christ and the Holy Spirit into our lives? Yeah, yes. Isn't a judgment in another way a revelation? I didn't want to get off on the judgment, but I'll just mention a couple ideas. Um, Revelation chapter 14. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of... His judgment has come. Does that mean the hour that he sits in judgment? Or does that mean the hour that he is being judged? So when we have the investigative judgment, is it God investigating us, or is it the time in earth history that his people on earth finally do their due diligence and investigate the evidence he's given about him and make the right judgment about him to trust him? They they both are being judged. Because what determines your ultimate destiny? Is it God's... If you judge God to be untrustworthy and you close your heart to Him, or you judge God to be trustworthy and you open your heart to Him, isn't that what determines your ultimate destiny? Yes. And and this is going to go back to what we mentioned earlier, God's law. If you believe God's law is the natural law upon which He built His universe then you understand God is working to, as the New Covenant says in Hebrews, I will write my law in your heart and mind. Okay, I will renew you. I will recreate you. You will get a new heart and right spirit. You'll have the heart of stone removed, the heart of flesh put in. You'll get a mind of Christ. It will no longer be you that live, but Christ lives in you. We'll be partakers of the divine nature. If you take the Scripture, the whole deal is if you trust God, He regenerates and renews you with the law of love as the operating system of your life again. That's what results in your eternal deliverance, salvation, and unity with God. If you believe the imposed imperial Roman law concept, then the law is imposed, we've broken the law, in order for justice to be served, something has to be done to pay the penalty of that crime. That crime penalty is, of course, eternal death. Now, God loved us, so he sent his son to pay that penalty. And now what needs to happen, we have to have a judiciary. We have to have a judgment. We have to have somebody sit and investigate records. We have to bring in evidence. We have to bring in testimony. We have to look to see if some blood payment has been made to your account. And then somebody has to make a determination whether you've had the proper penalty paid or whether you haven't had the proper penalty paid, and then you can be saved or not. It's all pagan. It's not the truth. It's not the gospel. The gospel message is, have you accepted Christ and that the Holy Spirit renew you in Christ's likeness in your heart? Has the law of love been written here again where you, as it says in Revelation chapter 12, those that are ready to meet Christ when he comes, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. What does that mean? I'm not watching out to save self. 
I love God and others more than self. I'm willing to give my life. Greater love is no man than he give his life for a friend. Those who seek to save their life will lose it. Those who will give their life for my sake will find it. He's teaching that the God's universe is built on the law of love. It is the only way life exists in the universe. This other thing is the imperial imposed law concept. And so again, which doctrine do you believe about God's law? Christianity has been infected for uh, 1,800 years at least, since Constantine, 1,700 years, with this other idea. Protestants and Catholic doesn't matter. They argue back and forth whether the, uh, think this through, the big argument over the change in law and the little horn power in Daniel 7, should, did, the, did the Catholic Church have authority to change number two and number four? No. That's the big, well, think it through. If you understand God's law is the natural law he built his universe to run upon, as exampled in the law of respiration, you have to breathe in order to live. It's just a design law. You can't get around it. Can an ecclesiastical authority meet in a committee and change that law? No. When you understand the law as a natural law, it cannot be changed. But if you understand the law as an imposed law, a set of rules that are put upon us to obey, well, then your committee can meet and change the day from Saturday to Sunday and get rid of number two. And, and, and so Adventists and Protestants have been arguing back and forth with Catholics. You had no authority to change the law. Well, yes, because we're God's representative on earth. The church has authority to change the law. It's all based on a misunderstanding of the law. When we talk about just uh, investigative judgment, we naturally think of condemnation. But doesn't have the investigative judgment more to do with uh, vindication? He says, doesn't just, and yes, exactly right. What are we investigating? We're investigating, the universe is investigating the great controversy, the allegations against Paul, I mean, against God that Paul referenced in Romans, where he said, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. God, may you be proved right when you are judged, depending on your translation. Think that through. Paul understood this. God is being judged by us because he has been lied about. Back to the metaphor that I started the class out with. Somebody has lied to you that your spouse is having an affair. There's no truth in it at all, but you believe your spouse is cheating. And so you're angry, you're mad, you've moved out because you believe your spouse is cheating. Your spouse loves you. Your spouse has been faithful. Your spouse is loyal. Your spouse understands that you have been deceived by a liar. Now, if your spouse wants to reconcile with you and win you back, what will your spouse have to do? Your spouse is now on trial, aren't they? They will have to reveal evidence to you that what was told to you was a lie, and you will have to make a judgment about them. That's the great controversy. God loves us so much, he's gone to great lengths to reveal the truth that we can judge him right, and he's been lied about. That's what Paul's referencing in Romans. So, um, on, on to um, Sunday's lesson. Paul, it, the lesson states in the second paragraph that Paul's concern was not simply about theological ideas and doctrinal points. His heart was bound up with the lives of the people. And of course his, his heart was bound up with the lives of the people because Paul understood the living law that we're talking about. He understood that God's law is applied into the heart and mind. It's not a system of rules to be obeyed. It's not a dead list of uh, requirements. So let's give some examples. The Pharisees saw the Sabbath as a rule to be obeyed. Jesus understood the Sabbath was evidence of God's character of love, and thus he went around healing people on the Sabbath. 
And the Jewish leaders saw him as breaking the rules because they saw it as a rule to be obeyed and wanted to crucify him for breaking the rules. How about this one? Modern, true story. Church school teacher being physically abused by her deacon husband, deacon in the church. She goes to the pastor for help. Pastor counsels the husband, but he continues to beat the wife. This goes on for over three years. So she finally divorces him. He goes to the church conference and complains that she divorced him without biblical grounds because he had not committed adultery. And the church conference fired her from her job. True story. You see, the conference, think about law of love, imposed law, set of rules. The conference and the husband see God's law as an imposed law of rules that you have to obey, rather than the law of love, the design for life. Life. Neither the conference nor her husband operated in harmony with the law of love, did they? No. See, the Bible teaches that when you break the law in any point, you break the law in all points. And thus, a man who beats his wife commits adultery. Because adultery is betrayal of your heart love for your spouse. That's what adultery is. But if you, don't, if you understand it as a list of rules, then you actually separate each rule out and you create a definition for each rule, and it has nothing to do with love anymore. It has to do with behavior. No. Is that why in Revelation and in the Old Testament, God is going on and on about the Israelites and then the people at the end of time being adulterous? Yes, did you hear? She says God goes on and on, berates the people through the Bible as being an adulterous generation. Why are they adulterous? Because their hearts are going after other gods. They're betraying their love and their trust. That's what adultery is. But we want to make it out to a list of rules, and we want to make it behavioral. It's not. What does it look like today? So the last paragraph says, to be a follower of Christ, this is a great statement, to be a follower of Christ is more than just the profession of faith. It involves a radical transformation in the likeness of Christ. Do we agree? Yeah. So what does it look like today? What does that look like today? January 10, 2011, 13-year-old Jordan Rice and his little brother Blake were riding in a car with their mother Donna when Donna drove into a flooded street in Toowoomba, Australia. The car stalled and water began flooding into the car. The three of them climbed out onto the roof and Donna called for help. Jordan, 13-year-old Jordan, was terrified of water. He couldn't swim. But when a rescuer came to rescue him, he said, Save my brother first. The rescuer took Blake to safety, but before he could return, the car was swept away and Jordan and his mother drowned. What does a follower of Christ look like today? Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us and we ought to give our lives for our brothers. Is this what a follower of Christ would look like in action today? Yes or no? I actually don't know whether Jordan was a Christian or not. But was he revealing Christ? Can you reveal Christ without being a Christian? How? How can a person who's not a Christian reveal Christ? Yes? There are a lot of stories of people in... uh, early Native American or even in other countries where people treated another person as Christ would. Even though they didn't know Jesus, they'd never heard the word, had never seen the Bible. I think a better question is, could you reveal Christ without professing to be a Christian? Okay. Oh, nice. I would well imagine that Christ 
treats those who reveal him as, as Christians, as his children. Anybody remember the Chronicles of Narnia, the last book in the series, when a young um, worshiper of Taz, Taz was, of course, representative of Satan, and, and uh, Aslan was, of course, representative of Christ, and the young worshiper of Taz ends up in uh, Narnia, in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the Aslan's homeland. And he says, how is it I, a worshiper of Taz, ends up here with you, Aslan? And what did Aslan say? One, uh, all the good that you did in the name of Taz was actually rightly done uh, in my name. Because one cannot do good, kind, and loving things uh, in the name of Taz. And all the evil done in my name is actually worship attributed and given to Taz. Because one cannot actually do evil and be a worshiper of mine. Now, this is what Ellen White says in the book Desire of Ages, page 638. Those whom Christ commends in the judgment may have little knowledge of theology, but they have cherished his principles. Through the influence of the divine spirit, they have been a blessing to those about them. Even among the heathen are those who have cherished the spirit of kindness. Before the words of life have fallen upon their ears, they have befriended the missionaries, even ministering to them at peril of their own lives. Among the heathen are those who worship God ignorantly, those to whom the light is never brought by human instrumentality, and yet they will not perish. Though ignorant of the written law of God, they have heard his voice speaking to them in nature and have done the things that the law required. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts and they are recognized as children of God. I find that awesome. Do you understand there's, there's doctrinal teaching in much of Christianity that if you don't actually get water baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you can't be saved? Yes. During the colonization of America, someone was ostracized because of his beliefs, and he fled, and he was befriended by the Indians. Here was this Christian who was befriended by the Indians and supported by him during the winter. You know, went on to establish... While the other Christians would have burned him at the stake. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Think that through. So who was the true Christian in that environment? It was the Indians who were protecting this. Now, how can this be? goes back to your understanding of law. God's law is not a written law. It wasn't actually written down until Sinai. That's when it was put on stone. But why was it put on stone? Because where did it no longer exist? In the heart. In the heart. Exactly right. It's God's law is a living law. It's the t- design template upon which life is built to operate. So any biblical support for this radical idea that people who don't profess Christ but yet practice his principles are considered his children. Any, any, any biblical support for that radical idea? No. Romans, exactly. Romans chapter 2, starting in 12. All who sin apart from the law the Torah, the Bible, the Scripture, will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the law has been written on their hearts. What is the new covenant? I will write my law on your hearts and minds. They have been renewed. And what is the law? It's the law of? 
love. So what this is saying is, those who haven't actually had the Bible brought to them, they haven't heard the great controversy story, but in nature, because Paul, prior to his, his what I just read to you in Romans 2, wrote in Romans 1, verse 20, that God's eternal power and divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. That in nature we see the principles of beneficence. In nature we see the law of giving. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide and the plants give back oxygen to you. This, this never-ending cycle of love that we see God built the universe to run upon. The Holy Spirit enlightens your mind to comprehend goodness, to comprehend kindness, to comprehend love. And, and you practice those principles. That's Holy Spirit regeneration where you love God and others more than self. And the Holy Spirit's working on all peoples and all places. Yes? Aren't we told that the angels in heaven before Satan did his thing, they had no clue there really was a law. They didn't even think about there being a law. It was so part of their being and it was just the way you live. Exactly right. Until Satan started insinuating against God. Exactly right. Monday's lesson. Uh, first paragraph states, Paul offers himself as an example on how believers in Thessalonica should work to earn their own living and not be a burden to others. Well, this is, this is the principle that the lesson's pointing out, that they should work to earn their own living and not be a burden to others. Why do our church leaders take so literally and strongly Paul's views on women leadership in the church, but reject his view on leaders being self-supporting? seriously I mean here we have an admonition you know don't be supported by others and Paul of course had every right if somebody was going to but he wouldn't take that he he did his fishing nets and all this other stuff to promote his own way and he said to be a model what advantage might there be for our organizational church if church leaders were required to be self-supporting as Paul it's Paul here admonishes and, and I'll ask the second question, what disadvantages will there be if we did that? Well, how about if we had this self-supporting ministry where the church doesn't pay a, a, t- a salary to a pastor, it would undermine the division between laity and clergy and bring members closer to leadership and open the door for more uh, member-led led leadership. It would provide a huge amount of money to be going into missions, huge amount of money to missions and gospel-spreading message. Um, it would change the landscape. I will tell you this, I believe with all my heart, the landscape of who becomes a pastor would change dramatically. Amen. You would not have the career theologian clergy anymore. You would have people who were spirit-moved to be in that profession. And they, they're not in it because they need a paycheck. They're in it because their heart is moved by the spirit to do the work. I think the Jehovah's Witnesses practice that, don't they? Uh, I don't know if the Jehovah's Witnesses do, the Mormons do. The Mormons, they, yeah. they, everybody has a job, Yep. and in the evening they prepare their sermons, and they are bishops or deacons. or. I know an Adventist missionary that does that, uh, he and his wife. It's the Appels, you probably know them, they've come here to speak, uh, and they are missionaries in Africa, in Chad, in, mm-hmm. in Beret, and he has a book out now called Nasara, and if you're interested... Uh, it can be gotten on Amazon.com. But it tells of all, a lot of his experiences, and uh, y'all would appreciate reading about this missionary who is self-supporting. Nice, nice. Might, if our church changed this way, might it result in less organizational infighting and more gospel promotion? Yes, there's a hand right here. 
There's another balancing verse, 1 Corinthians 9, 14. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And what does that mean? There's a place for supported ministry. Does that mean that? Or does that mean when you preach the gospel, the gospel brings its own rewards? It talks about the ox feeding from the... That's actually in, uh, in Deuteronomy. Yes. Yeah, give the ox, give the ox its hire. And, and, of course, Ellen White interpreted that to mean that those who write books and the authors should actually get uh, rewards and get uh, royalties off of the, of the scholastic work they do. Jesus Christ was self-supporting, too. Yeah, um, but but let's look at the disadvantages. I'm just uh, those advantage. There's disadvantage if we go that way. What are the disadvantages if our church would move that way? Yes. Exhausted at the end of the week. There's not a lot of time to prepare for Sabbath for a sermon or whatever you're going to be preaching or teaching. So the the pastor it might be more exhausted at the end of the week, like our pastors are really rested right now. <laughs> <laughs> pastors get worn out, don't they? Yeah. When the gospel come. From Jesus Christ, from the heavenly sanctuary through the man, and he would guide him. No matter how tired he is, uh, frustrated or whatever, the, the God would give the message through the man. Because uh, what Paul said, "I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I, but Christ that liveth in me." And now, and so I live by the faith of the Son of God. And so it's no question Christ the, in us that we'll be doing. No question. We, we can't teach any truth without the Holy Spirit in our mind. No question about it. What about the disadvantage that we might have less educated uh, pastorate? Is that a possibility? Yeah, that, that we might have a less educated pastorate? And, um, and the possibility that there would be more work for the laity to do? Oh, wait. Is that a disadvantage? <laughs> Other disadvantages you can think of? Less time for them outreach to others because they were involved in locations which took them away from active ministry. She's potential less time for um, the outreach in the community and, and organizing uh, programs and seminars and, and um, evangelism and, and those types of things. And, uh, and, and, and that goes back to the, the, the passage that you read about the gospel. Was Paul talking about church pastors when he said those who preach the gospel should be supported by the gospel? Or was he talking about evangelists who are going out into the community as missionaries to promote the gospel places that doesn't exist? I'm thinking more along he was, he was promote, promoting the support of the evangelists uh, that we as a group pay to support and provide for those evangelists and missionaries, but not for the local pastor. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's harder to keep everybody corralled. I just thought of good advantage where church members will be involved. Yes. The pastors are not paid, and church members ha- have to involve. They have to do more than they do right now. Uh, I think there might be fewer churches. Now, one can argue that that might be uh, an advantage as well. Get fewer, better churches as opposed to you know, many churches like Mushrooms that uh, are, are preaching a, a diluted gospel. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not saying what the right answer is. Yeah. I just put the question out there. Right. The lesson had the thing. I observed it. I said, wait, you know what? Paul says this. Do we do it? Would there be advantage to practicing this principle? I sure notice that the church loves to practice the one on, on women in leadership. What, what about this one? And so I thought it'd be worthy of a little discussion. Yes. If pastors have to work, they have less time to visit their members. When was the last time you got a visit from your pastor? If anybody got a visit from their pastor in the last year at your home, raise your hand. 
Two, two hands out of over 120, 30 people in here. I don't see pastors doing a lot of visiting these days. I come from Holland, in Holland too. It's she says she comes from Holland, in Holland too. Not, not a lot of visiting going on. Yeah. Yes. Without a lot of discussion, I'm reading a book called The Simple Church, mm-hmm. and it's addressing that topic exactly. That way too many times we are focusing on all our programs and all these extra things and not focusing on loving Christ. If we're focusing on loving Christ, it's going to automatically come out with us and all these things we're questioning, the maturing process, we're going to create disciples. We're going to create all of this, simplifying our focus on Him and leaving all these extra programs out of the way. Let's jump to Wednesday's lesson. I hope maybe we get back to Tuesday, but I want us to cover some things in Wednesdays. Middle paragraph asks the question, what might have been God's reason for allowing Paul to suffer? What might have been God's reason for allowing Paul to suffer? And I thought, why does God allow suffering of any kind? And I thought maybe we could spend the, the class talking about that to, today. And I, I've actually got some, some reasons here that maybe we, we might want to go through. Why does suffering happen? Why does suffering occur? Yes. I think when you suffer, you learn to depend more on God and it deepens that relationship because you know that he's working with you to grow something even better when you go through that. And also, you, you, you see suffering, there's, there's a short-term suffering, but you look at the long-term gains. So is it really suffering or gaining? That's sort of attitude. So one reason people suffer, that you're suggesting, and the Bible gives evidence for this, is that through our sufferings we develop perseverance, and through perseverance we develop patience, and through patience we develop character. And so one reason suffering can happen is that it can help us uh, spend more time reaching out in our relation with God for his deliverance and healing and, 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 and build that deeper relationship. God actually took the children of Israel uh, from Egypt to the Red Sea and cornered them at the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army bearing down on them. And I suspect there was some emotional suffering that they had and anguish and tension uh, at that moment. And God brought them there for that purpose to help them develop a trust and confidence in him to allow the, open, the Red Sea open and they were delivered and, and it was to build a confidence-faith relationship. There's one reason. Is that exclusive? Is that all reasons? No, over here. I think it's important to remember that this is not a good planet. You know, this is a world of sin, and therefore suffering happens because of that. God does not ordain suffering, but he neither controls those who are making poor choices. Um, So the poor choices of someone else will affect me, and I will suffer because of it. Okay, over here. I also am thinking that when you suffer of something, you can have better understanding of another person that suffers through the same thing. And often people that experience really difficult time in their life, they actually do so much good for others who go through exactly the same thing. You know, she's, she's exactly right. Haven't you ever had somebody, if you've suffered a similar experience to them, there's a, a heart connection, a bond, an empathy, an understanding there? Have you ever had somebody that hasn't gone through an experience of pain that you've gone through, and they go, I know what you're going through, and you go, yeah, right. <laughs> okay? Yeah, right. Okay. Well, uh, Mrs. White surprised me in spiritual gifts when she said that one of the reasons for the plagues and so on, and that the for at least part of them, the Israelites were allowed to be part of the plagues, <laughs> and so at the end of time as well, is that God was using that to make them want to leave because they were so used to being there, even though they were being mistreated. The thought of going out into the wilderness to something unknown was 
a little frightening to a lot of them. And this, this experience of toughness made them want to get out of Dodge. Did you all hear that? So sometimes we can maybe so settled into a certain complacency in a place that's really not for our best interest that maybe some difficulties come upon us to cause us to become dissatisfied so we're willing to move. I can see that. Yes. The example of Job. Why did he suffer so much? Well, we're going to get to that one too. Okay? And let's, let me run through some reasons here. One reason people suffer, obviously the Bible uses the word sin. I like to use the, uh, and sin, deviations from God's design deviations from the way God built things to run. And so we can have self-inflicted deviations from the way God built things to run. You take a pencil and poke it in your eye. That's a deviation from the way your eye is supposed to work. And that will cause suffering. And you can do that. People have done that. Okay, now, Smoking. Smoking is a deviation. It will lead to suffering. Jumping off a building. Not loving others is a deviation from God's design. And it brings suffering. Um, valuing rules over people. Valuing rules over people brings suffering. Uh, Adultery brings suffering. Abusing yourself with alcohol and drugs brings suffering. Not just the suffering of an imposed penalty by a local law enforcement, but how do parents who use drugs treat their children? It brings suffering. Uh, When we deviate from God's design in any way, it always unavoidably will bring suffering. And so one reason we have suffering is self-inflicted wounds. We've all had self-inflicted wounds, haven't we? Okay. But that's not the only other reason. There's also the selfish, evil deviations of another person who's intentionally wanting to harm an innocent person. Um, And Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, intentionally inflicting wounds. Um, We probably heard too much about Penn State recently, where some innocent boys were had wounds inflicted upon them because of a selfish person. But there's another reason for suffering. Treatment of a problem. See, once there is brokenness, there is no pathway forward without some pain and suffering. If you have a broken leg, if you ignore it, you will have chronic pain and suffering. If you go to an orthopedic surgeon and get surgery, and then physical therapy afterwards, there is pain and suffering. But then there's healing and recovery. Uh, Setting a bone, like I mentioned, overcoming an addiction. Anybody that struggles with an addiction, going through a withdrawal phase and overcoming, there's a pain and suffering in that fight for freedom. Uh, resolving traumatic memories. I have patients that come to me who are traumatized in some time in their life, and as they work through those, there's pain and heartache and suffering as they work through those. Overcoming selfishness in our own characters, that spiritual struggle to experience the heart change. You see this with Jacob, the night that he wrestled with the angel. You see this type of suffering in our Savior in Gethsemane when he struggled and suffered in his humanity and agonized to the point he said he felt as if he was going to die. There is a suffering that comes in victory over the brokenness that we were born in. So there's that type of suffering. Um, How about suffering with discipline? A loving parent who disciplines their child, that child will have a certain type of suffering as we try to teach and correct. How about the fact that was mentioned earlier, we live in a war zone. We live in a place in which Satan goes around as a hungry lion seeking whom he may devour and directs people. And Margaret mentioned Job. Here's an example of suffering coming at the hands of the enemy to, to try and uh, destroy and, and mislead and tempt. Jesus in the wilderness, suffering coming at the hands of, of Satan. Or then accidents, randomness, 
flaws since the planet no longer operates in God's design. Your ladder breaks and you fall. A tire goes flat and there's an, ac- uh, an accident. Genetic defect happens in your biology and you have a child born with a defect. Um, who sinned that this man was born blind? Christ? Uh, who sinned this man was born blind? Him or his parents? Neither, Christ said. Randomness in this world because of sin. The world no longer operates as God designed it to. So, all these different reasons that we can see, and it's important that you see the different reasons, because I have seen people suffer for one reason, and somebody else tries to put the, well, it's God's will. God's just disciplining you. God is trying to develop your character. And it may not be that at all. That wasn't Job's case. That wasn't the man born blind case. There's lots of reasoning for suffering. That has, but sometimes it's true. There's discipline. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Do so we have to have discernment and not put this type of thing on people to, because it hardens their heart if it's not the case. It turns them away from a capricious God who would do this to me. So the next question is, why does God allow any of this type of suffering? Well, what are his options? Does God have the power to stop all pain and suffering and evil and sin? Does he have the power to do it? Yes. What would he have to do to achieve it? Two methods. Two methods. There's two. One method is to take away our freedom and make us all robots. And he could instantly put an end to it all. Just program us all. But if he does that, what does he simultaneously destroy? Love. Love, Love cannot exist in an atmosphere with freedom. So will God ever choose that, that method? That method won't be chosen. So there is another method to remove all pain and suffering and evil. Destroy everything. And that is to demonstrate the truth in order to destroy lies and win us to trust take our terminal condition upon himself and achieve remedy for that condition, send his spirit to administer all that he achieved into our hearts and minds, thus winning people freely to himself because he's worthy of our trust, and then letting each person freely decide what character they develop. Do they accept Christ and become more and more like him, or do they harden their heart and become more and more selfish? And then in the end, let each person freely reap that which they've chosen let him who is righteous be righteous still, and him who is wicked be wicked still. See the evidence. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love. There is terrible suffering in this world, Lord, and we know it breaks your heart. You have suffered beyond what we could suffer. If we can only imagine uh, how much we love the people that we have lost in this world, that you love them even more, and you not only love them even more, there are billions that you love and lost. How your heart must suffer. Lord, we, we know that you long to bring an end to the suffering. We pray that you will use us as instruments to be conduits of your love, your truth, to go out into this world that the light of heavenly truth might break through this dark distortion that has, that has burdened the church for thousands of years now, and that we can wake up out of this slumber Do our work and that you might come soon and that suffering can stop. We pray in your holy name. Amen.